You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. This podcast is designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. The information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to First Tech's latest news podcast, summarising the latest news and developments for June 2022. I'm Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me today is Linda Bruce, Julie Fox, and Richard Chen. How are we, guys? Hey, Craig. Hello, Craig. Good. Are we all excited about the end of financial year? Woo-hoo! Yes, and the new yes. changes in the new year. Oh, the hey. new change is a very, very exciting, very exciting. We'll talk about that later on. Yeah. Um, I'm always excited about getting to 30 June because obviously in June we get a stack of phone calls. <laughs> so it's a very busy time for us. So it's always great to get to 1 July because everyone gets a little bit of a rest for a couple of weeks, don't we? Normally all the advisors fall in a heap and we fall in a heap. Anyway, um, it's coming up to 1 July, so the exciting thing about that as well is it means that all the First Tech guides are getting updated. So, Julie, where can advisors get access to the guides? Very easy, Craig. Um, On First Tech's webpage, uh, you can access that through FirstNet Advisor, and if you just click on Technical Reference Guides. Every guide that we've written is on that page and you have access to the most current version of all of the guides. And the 2022-23 versions are all going to be available there from the 1st of July. Woohoo! Huge effort to get that over the line for 1 July. So which guides are actually going to be get printed this year? We just have two of our most popular guides that are actually being printed this year. So that includes the Super and Retirement Income Streams Guide and the Pocket Guide. So we're finalising the guides for print in early July. So given the usual print times, those printed versions should start landing on advisors' desks in August. And as usual, remember the SMSF guide is available online only. There's no printed versions of that one anymore. Okay, so how how do advisors order actually printed copies? So the ordering system for extra printed copies of the Pocket Guide or the Super and Retirement Income Streams Guide will open in late July. Uh, They they won't appear on the system until they've been finalised, so um, I don't want to waste advisors' time, so don't attempt to order guides until late July. We'll put the exact date um, that orders can be done at the top of our latest news page when we know for sure the exact date. Um, So advisors will be able to order in late July using FirstNet Advisor, and we have all of the details about the ordering process at the top of our latest news page. And I would probably imagine that uh, in our latest news for July, we'll be saying that the ordering process is open. So uh, we'll remind everyone at that point in time as well. So, and finally, what about the First Tech app? Has that been updated? Certainly has. The First Tech app is our phone version of the Pocket Guide. So advisors can download the latest version from the First Tech website that we just described. Uh, It's not available in Google Play or the App Store. So you just have to go to cfs.com.au forward slash first tech dash app on your phone to download it. 
The link is also on our webpage. Um, but if you're a current user, uh, it's probably easier just to go to the contact page in the app and you'll see an update link at the top of the page and you just can click on there to update the app. So if I've currently got the app on my phone, do I actually, I don't need to update it to get all the latest rates and threshold from the 1st of July. That will just come through automatically, won't it? It comes through automatically, but uh, you should update it just so that you've got the correct dates and banners and so forth so that you know which financial year you're working in. Okay. Okay, moving on to the latest technical issues. Now, the High Court recently handed down its decision in Hill v. Zuda, which is a really important and interesting case in relation to self-managed ship funds, specifically about a member's ability to make a non-lapsing binding death benefit nomination to their fund rather than having to refresh them every three years, which a lot of you might be sitting there going, I thought self-benchip funds could do that. Um, so, Linda, what was the outcome here? The outcome was um, the High Court unanimously dismissed the, the appeal. So, okay, so what, what was essentially happening here is there was a dispute around whether you could actually make a, a non-lapsing death benefit or binding domination to your self-benchip fund. I think the particular circumstances was that someone had made one, but it was outside the three years. They thought it was going to be non-lapsing anyway, and then someone was going to miss out on the yep. death benefit because <laughs> of that. And all of a sudden it went to the West Australian Supreme, uh, West Australian Supreme Court on appeal. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the people that obviously have a lot of money in their back pocket or a lot of time or a lot of vengeance maybe um, decided to appeal that all the way to the High Court. And the High Court interestingly decided to hear it, right? So when this went up to the High Court, a lot of people went, wow, they're actually reviewing this. I hope the whole industry hasn't got this wrong for the last 10, 15 years. <laughs> um, but what you're saying is the High Court dismissed the appeal. So what does yeah. this actually mean for people? It means... Business as usual, status quo, <laughs> and nothing is changing, which is really, really great, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. why is it important? Important. The importance means we don't have to do anything in a rush. Um, the members of the self managed Super Fund uh, will continue to be able to make the non-lapsing funding nomination uh, according to the fund trustees or fund governing rules as usual. And there's no need for uh, the members to rush around and update their non-lapsing nominations. Uh, there's no need to do that because, um, you know, as mentioned earlier, status quo, the fund can continue to offer the non-lapsing nominations. But Importantly, as we all know already, right? So the High Court did make a comment, made some comments that whether or not the founder is able to offer the non-lapsing binding nomination really comes down to the wording of the founder trust deed. And in certain situations, if the deed does refer to that three-year refreshing um, requirement, since in the CIS regulation, then you got to go and do your banning nomination, refresh it every three years. Otherwise, if the deed allows a non-lapsing version, business as usual, you can still do it. All right. Terrific. Now, if you want to know more about this, I'm going to dig into this topic on one of our other podcasts this month with Clinton Jackson, who is a lawyer from Cooper Grace Ward. So we'll have a podcast. We'll go in, we'll look at the background, and we'll dig into what the arguments were 
and what the High Court actually said, and specifically in relation to those issues around what's in your trust deed, just to make sure that you don't or a client doesn't inadvertently bring those lapsing rules back in, or if they want them, what they need to do to make their binding nomination a lapsing binding nomination. Okay, let's move on to the next issue. Now, the ATO has come out with some statements to say that they're going to extend the compliance relief for another year for the non-arm's length income rule. So more specifically, the ATO recently updated the the Practical Compliance Guideline PCG 2020-5, said it one sentence or one breath, about the non-arm's length expenditure rule. So this update will extend the ATO's compliance approach by another year for 30 June 2023. So this all sounds like, God, has this been going on forever? Do you want to just give us a very quick background about what's happening here? And then we can look at why they've extended another 12 months. Sure, Craig. I'll do my best. So let's journey back to 2018. There was a legislative change. So as a result, if the fund um, had a um, incurred expenses, uh, that is a lower than market value. Uh, so that's not arm's length expenses that could result in certain income within the fund being subject to the higher penalty uh, gnarly rate. So not arm's length income rate, which is 45%. Uh, thanks, Craig, for cracking me in the past. Not 47%, <laughs> but 45%. No medicare no Okay, let's move on. So shortly after the uh, legislative change, um, the ATO released that their view in terms of how the ATO would administer these new rules. So they released a draft ruling. In the draft ruling, there is a very controversial view included. So the ATO said, um, if there's a general non-ambulance expenses that would have a sufficient nexus with all the funds income, then all the funds income could be subject to nearly the 45% tax rate. Um, think about what kind of expenditures are we talking about? What kind of expenditures are of a general nature? So we're talking about could be relatively small expenses such as accounting fees, such as auditing fees or you know investment advisory fees. But those are these expenses that could have a sufficient nexus with all funds income. And okay, Craig, so yeah. Linda, I'll just stop you there. So what you're saying there is that if I've got income that relates to a specific assets the way there's mm-hmm. a non-arms like expense, then it's just that income. Right, but if I've got a general expense that relates to the operation of the fund, yep. then that taints all of the fund's income in that year as gnarly. Is that right? That's correct. Very nasty, and that, eh? And yeah. yeah, really nasty. And when you think about that, that would also include assessable contributions such as employer contributions or personal deductible contributions because that yep. just gets included in the fund's income. Such a great point, Craig. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They're just right. assessable. So, yep. so it's these general fund expenses. So from my understanding, this was as you said, really, really controversial. And so therefore what the government did was they they delayed putting out the final version of their, their LCR, didn't they? The, the ATO, yeah, they didn't release yeah. the final the version ATO, yeah, until July 2021, which is early of this financial year. That just left the industry in limbo. They, what are we supposed to do, right? So yeah, the ATO, to address those uncertainty, the ATO actually released the AP, 
a, a compliance guideline back in 2020. So that's a PC, uh, P, uh, PCG 2020-5. Uh, oh, that was a mouthful. <laughs> so mm-hmm. in this guideline, the ATO said, we're not going to, uh, uh, during this transitional period, we're not going to allocate um, uh, resources concerning the application of the general NLA issues until 30 June 2021. But because the final ruling was not uh, released until earlier this year, so this compliance guideline was extended to the end of the current financial year originally. Okay. Okay. So why now the extension to 30 June 2023? Yeah, unfortunately, in the final ruling released by the ATO, the view remained changed. So the industry was not very happy about it. But um, the government uh, acknowledged that they intended to change the law. Uh, that was before the election, but I'm glad to hear that the, the new Labour government has indicated they are supporting this intention. So as a result, you know, given there may be a legislative change coming up soon, hopefully, uh, the ATO has now extended the transitional relief for another 20, uh, 12 months until the end of the next financial year. Yeah, so I suppose it's important to understand there, to, to understand this extension is that that these rules impact all funds, not just self-managed super funds. So they could impact a large fund. So you think about all the members of a large fund where, you know, someone gets their, their charges to the particular fund slightly wrong and they charge on a cost recovery basis or something along these lines. Um, and therefore, all of the funds income plus contributions, accessible contributions are going to be taxed at, at 45%. So the government reacted to that. Uh, you know, you saw the whole industry, one of the few times we've seen industry funds, uh, retail funds, self-managed super funds, corporate funds, the whole industry go to the, the ATO or sorry, the government and say, you've got this wrong, this needs to change. And the government acknowledged that and they said, okay, yeah, we, we acknowledge that these rules aren't working as they intended and we'll change the rules. Now, they said that just prior to the election. But as Linda said, we do understand that the, the ALP is on with this, uh, signed up to, to look at this issue. So hopefully we will now see the law get changed. And in consequence of that law being changed or potentially been changed, the ATA has just simply turned around and said, well, OK, we'll extend the compliance relief for another 12 months because the law might be changed. OK, now moving on to the next issue. So with the new financial year, um, upon us, either depending on when you're listening to this, before 30 June or after 30 June, um, we've got some one July one July changes that we need to be aware of. So, Richard, let's start with the big ticket item being the work test removal. So, can you quickly summarise what's happening for those that have somehow been under a rock and missed this one? Yes, certainly. Uh, thank you, Craig. So, basically, from one July this year. Clients can make any types of super contributions without having to worry about the work test. However, they will still need to be under their upper age limit to be able to make a voluntary super contribution. In other words, the contributions need to be made before 28 days after the end of the month of their 75th birthday. Beyond this point, only downsides that are mandated employer contributions, such as super guarantee, can be accepted. Okay, so that's really quite important, isn't it? That a, a lot of people have this age 75 in their head. Um, so if we've got a client turning 75, let's say in July this year, they don't necessarily have to make the contribution before their 75th birthday. They've actually just got to get that contribution into the fund by the 28th of August in that yeah. example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so that that's 
fantastic news. Ho- hopefully we'll see, you know, a lot of people that between 67 and 75 that would like to get some money into super um, now able to contribute post the, the 1st of July. Now, does that mean we don't need to worry at all about the work test anymore? It actually depends. Um, if the client doesn't need to or want to make a personal contribution as a deduction, sorry, claim a personal contribution as a deduction, then that's correct. Uh, the work test is irrelevant from 1 July this year. However, if a client uh, who is within the 67 and 75 age group wants to claim a personal super contribution deduction to reduce their taxable income, they will need to declare to the tax office that they met the work test or the work test exemption during the financial year to be eligible. Right. And so the, the important thing there, I suppose, to note is that a fund will need to give, or sorry, a member will need to give a fund a notice of intention um, to be able to claim a tax deduction. Um, but what we're not seeing there is that in that notice of intention, you need to declare that you've met the work test before you actually hand the notice over. That will what we think be done in the tax return. So we've got a lot of information on this. We've done a lot of podcasts and have written a couple of articles. So if you want any further information on how these rules are going to work from the 1st of July, give us a call in the First Tech team or check out our podcasts or have a look through our articles on the First Tech site. Now, Richard, you also mentioned about claiming personal super contribution as a deduction earlier. So let's have a chat about that more specifically in relation to these notice of intentions I just talked about. So this year, this financial year is ending and clients are going to start lodging tax returns pretty soon, I would imagine. So we get lots of queries right about this time of year about that notice of intent and the fact that it's actually quite tricky to get it right. So do you have any tips for people about how they can get their notice of intent into us without causing a problem with their deductibility of their personal contribution. Yep, certainly. I just have two important tips to share. Um, mm-hmm. The first one, time frame is super important. Uh, notice of intent must be submitted uh, with, the real, with the super fund before tax return is lodged, or if the notice of intent has already been lodged, but the client or accountant then found out that the client doesn't actually need to claim as much or um, don't need to claim the deduction at all, in these cases, the notice of intent must be varied with the super fund before tax return is submitted. Advisors should remind the client not to lodge their tax return until everything is already sorted out. The second tip is to consider um, the impact towards their taxable income. So you've got to ask yourself the question, is it, a ta- is it actually tax effective to claim the deduction? And to work this out, we've got uh, guides, which the effective tax threshold guide, for advisors to take a look so they can refer to that. Uh, another important thing they should consider is, does your does the client uh, actually have enough income to claim the tax deduction? Because if their taxable income is insufficient, uh, it is not possible to claim the deduction uh, that's going to result in a tax loss. And if that happens, then the excess amount that they've claimed uh, as tax deduction would actually be disallowed by the tax office and it will end up counting towards the non-concessional cap instead of the concessional cap. And this can lead to further disastrous consequences, including breaching the non-concessional cap as a result. 
All right, so really, really important to get this right. It's something we see every year, um, unfortunately, that people somehow get yeah. either the notice wrong or they've claimed too much or too little and they're trying to fix things up. It's always better to get it right from the beginning and not try and fix it up after. Now, if the client made the contribution but has yet to provide their notice of intent, it's also important to not go and do something that would invalidate that notice of intent because it must be a valid notice, right? And there's certain things that if they happen before you provide, you know, between making the contribution and before you provide the notice, if you go and do one of these things, it will actually invalidate your notice, which means you can't claim a tax deduction for. So what would those things include? Richard, just uh, give us a refresher there. Yeah, so uh, mainly three things. Um, the client should hold off from commencing a pension, doing a rollover, or making any withdrawals, whether in part or full, before lodging the notice of intent or varying the notice of intent. If any of these things happen, um, they can impact the amount of deductions that can be claimed or, or, or impact the ability to vary the deduction down or just completely invalidate the ability to, to claim the deduction completely. Yeah, so in relation to commencing a pension, so if I've made my contribution, commenced the pension, and then I try and provide the notice, that completely makes the notice invalid. Yeah, yeah so exactly Essentially, right. I can't claim any deduction in that situation. What if I've rolled over, let's say, an amount? Does that wipe out the full deduction or is it just a partial deduction that's potentially available? It will reduce the amount of deductions available. You won't wipe out, but you will certainly only get to claim uh, part of it rather than the entire amount. Yeah, and we've got articles and podcasts on that issue as well, what to watch out for as part of uh, lodging these notices. So if you want to know more information about that, once again, give us a call in the First Tech team or go and check out those podcasts. Um, okay, so that's great. We, we have a lot of resources, as I said, so please check them out. Now, what about downsizer changes? This is changing from the 1st of July as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. And um, the change is surprisingly simple. Um, all it is is that the eligible age uh, for making a downsizer contribution is reducing from currently 65 and, and above to age 60 and above, starting from 1 July 2022. Uh, everything else stayed the same. And um, so interestingly, what that means is if you combine the work test changes mentioned earlier, uh, plus the downsizer changes to could potentially allow clients aged between 60 to 65 to combine their non-concessional contributions. 65 or 70? Sorry, 65. 75, 60 <laughs> to you. 75, apologies, yep to combine their bring forward contributions with the downsizer contributions and make a total contributions of up to 1.26 million for a couple in just one year. So I imagine that's working with, that's a, a $300,000 downsizer contribution, a $330,000 non-concessional contribution. And then we double that because we've got a couple. So that's what gets us to 1.26 million. Is that right? Yeah, that, that that's it. That's exactly right. Okay, all right. Moving on to preservation age. So, Julie, um, preservation age, what's happening here? Um, well, you might have noticed over, re over recent years, um, preservation age, of course, depends on your date of birth, but it's been rising every two years. So people of our age, you know, won't reach preservation age till 103. Um, but this, <laughs> this year's clients will be reaching preservation age for the first time if they're turning 59. Um, so that's something new. And because this only happens every two years, you probably didn't have anyone turning preservation age last year. 
so our first tech, Did You Know, covers the impacts of turning preservation age, like being able to commence a TTR pension. Um, so you can refer to that Did You Know for, for all the ramifications of turning preservation age this year. Right. It's, it's a bit weird, preservation age, isn't it? Because when you look at the, the ages that someone reached preservation age and, and the dates of birth, there's, a, there's this kind of year gap, isn't it? So you mentioned it there that actually there's a year that no one can actually reach preservation age. So this year being the 21-22 financial year, you couldn't actually reach your preservation age this year because, because of the way the date of births work. It, it can't happen until the 1st of July 2022 or later into the next financial year. So no one met preservation age this year. So you couldn't actually reach preservation, something do something like turn on a transistor retirement income stream, but you can from the 1st of July, right? So that's quite interesting. Yeah, so if you want to interest around that, uh, all the impacts of reaching preservation age, go and check out that Did You Know? Um, also, what's happening with Super Guarantee this year? Uh, well, the SG rate is rising again by half a percent to 10.5% uh, of ordinary times earnings base. Uh, remember, that's payable quarterly. And the $450 minimum salary per calendar month no longer applies. So that will mean more superannuation for members. It will also mean um, higher costs for small businesses, of course. So it's a double-edged sword. Um, our first tech article, increasing SG to 10.5%, key considerations. Uh, as its name implies, this article looks at the impact these changes have for clients, um, including, for example, less remaining cap space for concessional contribution strategies, because obviously the compulsory SG is taking up more of that cap space for members. Right. Okay. Um, the other interesting thing I kind of think of there with that 450 is you might have lots of pensioners, age pensioners out there doing a little bit of work to get the work bonus. Um, they might be earning less than 450 per month and therefore not getting SG, but all of a sudden come 1 July, they're going to be entitled to SG. Now, if that client has got a self-managed super fund, be very careful about directing their SG into that self-managed super fund because that's going to go into the accumulation phase. And if the client's currently sitting there currently fully in pension phase, they don't have to go and get an actuarial certificate because they're currently fully segregated. But now there's $10 worth of employer contributions there. They're going to have to go and pay $150 for an actuarial certificate because the fund is now at least part of the year in the accumulation phase. And you know, in that situation, you need to get an actuarial certificate to tell you you've got 99.99% of your fund is tax-free. So and paying $150 for the pleasure of it. So that's a, a little trap with that one. Um, and then finally, 1 July represents the date for indexation of a whole bunch of different thresholds that's important for financial planning purposes. Um, so do you want to just go through some of these, like the, the super caps and other caps and thresholds? Sure, Craig. Uh, my favourite time of type of year time of year is updating all of these thresholds in our pocket guide and our first tech app. Um, the nice news is with the concessional and non-concessional caps uh, for this financial year, they're not increasing. They remain the same as 2021-22, um, as does the transfer balance cap remains the same at $1.7 million. So no changes with those major uh, thresholds. But all of those thresholds that always change on the 1st of July, uh, you'll see those updated in the First Tech app and pocket guide. So that includes things like co-contributions, 
social security thresholds, aged care thresholds, low rate cap, ETP cap, uh, the tax-free amounts of genuine redundancy payments, the CGT lifetime cap, Medicare levy thresholds, and I'm, I'm sure there's more that I haven't mentioned, but uh, you can see all the new rates and thresholds in the new version of the First Tech Pocket Guide and the First Tech app out on the 1st of July. Terrific. All right, well, that pretty much sums it up for June. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Craig. Thanks Thank for you, Craig. having us. Happy end of financial year. Yay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during this podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.